The novel The Razor's Edge, which was made into a very effective and accurate Hollywood movie with Gene Tierney and Tyrone Power, is uh, by Somerset Maugham, and it tells the story of a young uh, Lake Forest, Illinois, um, uh, sort of uh, preppy man who, after graduating from St. Paul's School in the Northeast, declines college to go into a military service in World War I with the Lafayette Escadrille, and then uh, has an experience uh, at age about uh, uh, 19 uh, that uh, uh, involves a shock for which he is completely unprepared. And on the basis of this experience, which we only find out about a third of the way through the novel what it was, this experience um, takes him out of the world that he's always lived in, reflectively but non-questioningly, and uh, creates a surge of interest and urgent need for him to find out the meaning of life. And although that sounds hackneyed and a little bit of a cliché, this particular novel by Mom, The Razor's Edge, captures um, accurately and acutely and with tremendous vivacity and color and humor the tale of a man who is literally lifted out of his circumstances as a very young man on a spiritual journey which has all the credibility and the ring of truth, at least so far as I can see. Now, this uh, novel came to me through uh, reading uh, James Gould Cousins, whose uh, literary um, uh, hero in his own era was Somerset Maugham. And he always said that Maugham's view of reality, Maugham's ability to convey what was really happening, what is really happening in life and character, is um, so enviable that he would never not allow Maugham to be in the absolute pantheon with Swift and uh, Dr. Johnson and um, Shakespeare, actually. He, he thought very, very highly. So I determined to go back and read Mom. I'd always given Mom a bit of a miss because of the tremendous interest that now surges around his complex sex life and also the fact, more tellingly for me, that Mom was um, really an agnostic with a very strong atheistic and anti-Christian twinge which related to the fact that he had prayed as a young student at the King's School in Canterbury. Um, he had prayed for a relief from his stammer which was not given by God. And he had had an adolescent break with uh, his, in his view, childish faith, similar to what happened uh, with cousins at the Kent School with Father Sill. And he'd broken with his Christian faith, and he had it really, he had it out for Christianity. Also, he had been very unhappily kept as a kind of ward of a high church and rather cold and clammy, but not impossible, clergyman in uh, Whitstable in the coast of England, southern England, and uh, had a very bad taste in his mouth related to the Church of England and the church, although he'd been brought up um, every day with, uh, in the background of the Church of England. Now, Mom's uh, distaste for Christianity has always made it impossible for me to read uh, all of his great uh, memoir, The Summing Up, and much of his other books, although I always agreed that these books were um, powerful and deep and evocative. Now, However, when I came to read again his, uh, his um, great uh, novel, The Razor's Edge, I realized that uh, Mom had a great deal to teach me. These literary figures are not a kind of a, 
onanistic uh, place of uh, self. Uh, I'm not doing this uh, uh, for any other reason than to learn uh, what they have to teach me. I'm learning from literary figures, uh, in my opinion, who were looking at religion and at life with a kind of rapier truth and accuracy and understanding that I've missed along the way. And so I have a natural gravitation for writers <coughs> and artists who seem to see or have glimpses of what I'm so very um, uh, uh, personally uh, delving into myself at this stage of life. And The Razor's Edge is a very safe and fine guide because in The Razor's Edge, Mom is asking the great question of human existence. What's it all about, Alfie? And uh, I'd like to talk briefly about The Razor's Edge and then talk about the real theme of this uh, of this podcast is can a young person understand or acquire wisdom that usually is reserved to the more experienced. Uh, it's so easy for older people to say, well, now they're there. You're being all idealistic and life-embracing, but um, you will soon see or you will ultimately come to find out that disillusionment and disenchantment is the, is the name of the game and you're going to have to, your, your house of cards is going to come. I'm going to tear your playhouse down. Isn't that a, a, a song? Um, your, your playground is going to come down at some point. And at then... And at that point, y'all, uh, y'all come running back to me. Time is on my side, says the older generation to the younger. <clears throat> but it often sounds like kind of a killjoy. I mean, who who is this 55-year-old man to tell me that I can't <clears throat> have a wonderful life and uh, uh, embracing delightful physical experience of all that the world has to offer me in my 20s and 30s and 40s. Who in the world are you to throw cold water on that? And I would say, well, um, if it's true, it's true. But also I want to say, well, let's, let's see if it would be possible to be a young man or a young woman living a healthy, normal, uh, life-embracing experience an affirming approach to all that the world has to offer you and yet not do it in such a way that you will at some point become disillusioned to the max. So the Larry Darrell character who is disillusioned at age 19 and proceeds to find uh, his way towards something like wisdom in his 30s is this not something to emulate? Remember they, they, said, uh, they said once to the Buddha, um, why didn't you wait till you were an old man to retire from the world and do all this uh, inner uh, reflecting and meditation? Why didn't, you, uh, why didn't you enjoy life as it was in your youth and then later embrace this ascetic lifestyle? And he would say, well, no, you don't understand. I got the message, the sort of tap, 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 the sort of eyes wide shut, tap, tap, tap of death, the cold finger of mortality. I received that message, thank heavens, when I was a very young man in my early 30s. And then I had the energy to pursue it. <clears throat> I had the focus. I had the physical agility to pursue it. So thank God I received as a young man the wake-up call because then I had the, the, the youthful vitality to give everything to trying to understand the nature of the world. Now that was the Buddha's answer. And remember, the, the great religious figures have often been, um, almost always, but not in, uh, supremely, been young, uh, young, young people. 
And that is, uh, that is the question. Can a young person, can any person learn from the example and life that mom has um, portrayed, in my opinion, with accuracy, the search for truth in the light of shock and disillusionment? It's obviously something that I identify with, and I really want to ask the question of Larry Darrell's search. Now, <clears throat> what happens in the book? is that um, he uh, had had uh, an experience of a, of a fellow who had saved his life in a brief dogfight over France. Um, they both crashed, but they walked out alive and well, and he, he went up to his very dear friend who had, who had saved his life in the air, and he said, thanks, Red, I'm, I'm, you, you saved my life. And Red, not knowing that he's been, uh, has uh, internal injuries, he's been grievously wounded, uh, suddenly um, has a look on his face because, as Mom writes, Red had never in a million years conceived the possibility of his own death. And a look passes across Red's face, who's also about 19 or 20, and he says, well, I'll be jiggered. And then he collapses dead on the ground. Now, as Mom later says, we don't really understand what went on in Larry Darrell's mind and heart when this shock from which he was unprepared came. And he goes on to comment, Mom does, that sometimes uh, the thing that undoes a person is uh, can be a trivial seeming or it can be a small thing from the uh, perspective of someone else. But because the circumstances and the feeling and the, and the mood was right in respect to the recipient, it had a walloping, overwhelming impact. Well, this does. And he, uh, Larry Darrell goes back, he has a small little trust fund from his uh, deceased parents, and he decides not to go to Harvard College, which everybody else does, <coughs> Harvard or Yale or Princeton, and he, um, he begins to withdraw, and everyone is very struck, and his, his uh, ever-loving girlfriend, who turns out to be a witch, but who has a kind of obsession for Larry, uh, says to the Somerset Mom character, into it, um, uh, Mr. Mom, what actually has happened, Larry? He's been on this. He's he's a different person. He's come back. He's not the. He was always so fun and delightful and had zest for life. And we every minute with him was a pure pleasure. He was so funny and absurd and delightful. And now he's. It's as if he is going through the motions. He he's not himself. And it's been that way for two years. What's going to happen? Well, <clears throat> it turns out that uh, uh, Larry has actually begun a um, concentrated uh, search to find uh, the meaning of a life that could have ended with the um, haplessly perplexed look over his friend's face. Well, I'll be jiggered. And he begins a search in his very early 20s for, for, for wisdom. And uh, oh, it, the, it becomes kind of a detective thing because you, 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 mom only gives you through conversations with other people. It's a little bit of a Citizen Kane thing, but this is a young man over the period of about 15 years. And mom gives you little clues. And one of the most interesting literary touches is the following. Um, Larry is talking to Isabel, this woman who ends up marrying someone else and they decide not to be married, but she is really a, a she has such a romantic obsession with Larry that she interferes. And in one situation, painfully and and decisively interferes with someone else who Larry loves. And uh, she says to him, there's very young in the whole book, and she says, Larry, um, people... Uh, People have been asking those questions for thousands of years. If they could be answered, surely they'd have been answered by now. Larry chuckled. He says, There are more answers than questions, and lots of people have found answers that were perfectly satisfactory for them. Old Risebrook, for instance. Who was he? 
Oh, just a guy that I didn't know at college, Larry answered flippantly. Isabel didn't know what he meant, but passed on. Well, later on, on page 87, um, Mom, the narrator, is speaking to the same woman, Isabel, again. And um, this is interesting. Isabel had a good memory, and uh, she was telling me about Larry's conversation, and she suddenly interrupted herself to ask me a question. Who is Risedale? Risedale? He was a Dutch landscape painter. Why? She told me that Larry had mentioned him. He had said that Risedale, at least, had found an answer to the questions he was asking. What do you suppose he meant, she said. I had an inspiration. Are you sure he didn't say Risebrook? He might have. Who was he? He was a Flemish mystic who lived at the 14th century. Oh, she said with disappointment. It meant nothing to her, but it meant something to me. That was the first indication I had of the turn Larry's reflection was taking. Well, now we begin to see that Larry has been reading the mystics, and he is beginning to look for some kind of mystical answer to the questions he's asking. It's a brilliantly planted clue on page 87. <clears throat> and then... We hear there, the story has other characters. It has a, an extraordinarily memorable a snob, absolute snob, named Elliot Templeton, but who has a lot of flair and, more importantly, is a man of heart and a loving man. It has a, at, in, at the heart of the story exists Elliot Templeton as well, who is a sort of upper-class, wealthy, slightly, just a tiny bit of a con man, who is an absolutely brilliant and effete snob, but who actually is a lovely man and a sweet person and ends up becoming a devout Roman Catholic from being an Episcopalian, needless to say. And uh, the description of Elliot Templeman's, uh, Templeton's uh, movement towards uh, Roman Catholicism is fascinating, wry, funny, delightful, and ultimately very moving. But the real movement of the story, the razor's edge, on which and over which um, Larry Darrell is going to have to move. The real uh, point of the story is Larry's movement. And uh, over time, in this very uh, brilliantly constructed tale, we find that Larry uh, spent two or three years just reading in libraries in Paris. He's a very well-educated young man, and he's read a tremendous amount, like Risebrook. And then he takes some time off to go work in a coal mine and do some manual labor. And he meets <clears throat> all sorts of interesting people, among them a Roman Catholic a priest, a monk, and he spends time in a uh, in a monastery in Alsace-Lorraine, which is unsatisfactory but helpful in many ways. And then he sort of is footloose and travels all over the place, and he, he decides, as uh, we keep finding out in installments, what's happened to Larry. He, uh, he goes to, uh, to India. And um, I think the... Uh, the key uh, chapter of the book becomes, is towards the end, it's chapter six, and uh, uh, Mom has a very uh, funny uh, beginning to it. Chapter six, he says, I feel it right to warn the reader that he can very well skip this chapter without losing the thread of such story as I have to tell, since for the most part it is nothing more than the account of a conversation that I had with Larry. I should add, however, that, except for this conversation, I should perhaps not have thought it worthwhile to write this book. 
Now, isn't that a marvelous throwaway? He says, you know, you can skip it because it's just a, a little bit of talk and uh, <clears throat> move on to chapter seven and you'll, what, you'll find out what happens to Isabel and uh, Larry and uh, Larry's encounters with women and uh, Elliot Templeton and other people of the story. But he says, this is, he clearly says, this is the whole point of the book. And in chapter six, which um, begins uh, on page 243 of The Razor's Edge. Larry tells the story of how he uh, ended up in India after a number of other experiences. And uh, in India, he visits an ashram, and uh, he uh, visits a, um, a Hindu holy man, and here he finds what he's looking for. It's some... It's not uh, hackneyed. Oddly enough, it's not silly. It's not reductionist. <clears throat> he leaves it very open. But something to the end uh, of, of this is what he discovers. He discovers that the, the uh, holy man he meets, who's very revered and very much on the level, says to him, Larry, there are three ways of finding God in the world. One is the way of faith and worship. One is the way of good works, and one is the way of wisdom through knowledge. You have chosen the third. And in uh, this chapter, Mom kind of outlines the entire history of religions, focusing in this particular context, not of the first and the second, but on the third. And then he... Um, he uh, he offers uh, on uh, page two seventy three the closest thing to to a kind of summary of what Larry finds and um, uh, Larry reports to Somerset Maugham the uh, narrator as they're having breakfast in in uh, Paris. Uh, what he taught me was very simple. He taught that we are all greater than we know and that wisdom is the means to freedom. He taught that it is not essential to salvation to retire from the world but only to renounce the self. He taught that work done with no selfish interest purifies the mind, and that duties are opportunities afforded to man to sink his separate health self and become one with the universal self. I felt that, at last, I had found what I wanted. Now, you'll say... Rightfully so. This is sort of the usual perennial philosophy of the abnegation of the self, the entsagen, Goethe's forswearing of the self, and a kind of merging into the sort of ultimate selfhood of the universe, which is love and God, and that the result of this is to free a person from over-identification or possessiveness about the goods of this world, and that that is freedom to do what one really wants to do, so you're not governed by all these other false ideas that your sort of individual self has been hooking onto, and that thus uh, you can do work with no selfish interest, and you're now uh, able to do what is before you, here or nowhere. And you'd be right. <coughs> to say that. That is the meaning of the book, and that is the meaning of what Larry finds. But Larry is such an interesting character that he's not a, a systematist at all, and he goes off immediately, and instead of sort of writing a self-help book, you know, uh, some 10 steps to a glorious and fulfilled, peaceful, serene life, he doesn't do that at all. He goes, and he, he goes back and he studies individuals whom he regards as, as having somehow successfully lived their life you know, in the way of freedom and peace. And he, he writes a book 
which is a series of essays like Lytton Strachey's Eminent Victorians. And Larry, he's now in his very early 30s, late 20s, <clears throat> let's say early 30s, produces a pub- privately published book in Paris, which has essays on uh, Akbar, the Mongol emperor, Sulla, the Roman absolute ruler who uh, resigned his post uh, at the height of his power and retired into private life. He has a chapter on Goethe, a chapter on Rubens, and a uh, chapter on, interestingly enough, the Earl of Chesterfield, of the Lord Chesterfield letters. And um, this book mystifies Mom because it, it doesn't have the spiritual quality that he expected from Larry, but he then understands almost immediately when he begins to read it that Larry has been using these different great lives as sort of um, uh, hat pegs to hang his hat on and ask himself what he could learn. You can imagine I identified with this because I'm, I go through a fave, a, a Kerouac phase or a Cousins phase or a, um, an Urban S. Cobb phase because... Each of these, uh, Thornton Wilder period, because each of these artists uh, seems in their work to have um, manifested a glimpse of something that I personally am looking for, some some truth that is helpful to me in my own personal movement and, uh, I guess the sort of cliche word is journey, path. Remember what Kerouac said, a watched path never forms. Um <clears throat> And so I can very much identify, um, perhaps you can, you, you're looking for somebody who seems to offer some kind of uh, wisdom in the midst of a highly uncertain and at this point um, absolutely um, disillusioned reality, quote, end of quote, that is that, that you've now come to have no more uh, belief in than, than you would a, 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 an utter a uh, fairy tale, a silly fairy tale. So you, you're, of course you're looking for an orientations point. Uh, you're looking for this. So Larry goes and writes this book. And at the end of the book, there's a lot of plot turns which relate to women, and I want to comment on that in just a minute. A lot of <coughs> plot turns. Um, Larry, uh, we don't really know what Larry's done with his life. It's very open. It reminds me a little bit of the marvelous uh, Duke in the end of Resurrection by Tolstoy, who's been shattered by his own guilt about something that had happened that he had done as a very young man and has gone on a journey of expiation and atonement. But it, it's not quite enough. And he is released by the woman he's been attempting to uh, expiate for or atone for or uh, help out of guilt. He is released from by her uh, very dramatically and harshly. And he goes off into the sunset, as it were, with his New Testament and uh, to try to find what his life will now be. And uh, Tolstoy has what I believe is the remarkable line, as to what the future holds for him. Time will only tell, but one thing we know, it has only just begun. He quotes the carpenters, as it were, and I, I love that because the the man having attempted to find his release uh, and and only partly found it is given a kind of emancipation which allows him now to move forward in his maturity. And I recommend uh, with a sort of a pendant uh, the older man in Resurrection with the very young man in Larry Darrell. Now, uh, before I conclude and comment about Larry Darrell, I want to simply add a subsidiary theme. Mom is very, very good <clears throat> on the relationships between men and women. And without commenting on his highly now, uh, very everybody's very engrossed in the question of mom's bisexuality and uh, his um, gay life, which was extremely um, active. And a new book by Selena Hastings has recently come out about it. 
uh, which I think is true. The um, a point about Mom, like a lot of these artists, is that they understand about the <clears throat> power of, let us simply call it, uh, the... Um, the sexual dynamic in human uh, in human affairs. They understand the power of it. And so Mom, without any kind of political correctness, because here he's writing in 1940, and I believe that he would do the same today, actually, if he didn't watch too much media and didn't get caught up in too many other views uh, that are sort of ideological. All he wanted to do was describe what he saw. And his <coughs> description of Isabel Maturin, um, is uh, such, and his discussions with her about men and women, the author and Isabel have long discussions about women and men in relationship to sex, and these are so full of wisdom, and they will light up your life, and despite all the ideology that you may have ingested, and all the things you've been taught as sort of concepts and identity politics, y y you'll, you'll be forced to go, shall we say, a step further when you read Mom on this subject, because he simply tells it like it is. He tells the way unconscious drives really work. He understands what goes on inside a person, as Cousins does so remarkably in the character of Cora Ross and Amanda Turk, most especially in Guard of Honor and also in uh, uh, Clarissa Winner and some of the other women characters in uh, By Love Possessed. This was a, a, a talking point uh, with uh, Cousins and um, people will say immediately, they'll come in and they'll say, these writers are sexist. And that's really unfair. That's, that's to put a label on something which is simply a description. And the descriptions you'll find in The Razor's Edge relating to men and women and how they relate in respect to sex is, are, um, in my um, reading, uh, unexampled. They're, 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 uh, they're just about the, the power of the unconscious drives in men and women that, uh, that create the kinds of uh, situations that we all get into over our lives. And Larry, uh, you might say, escapes, but uh, he has two fascinating long-term relationships with women, one with an old friend named Sophie McDonald, whom he tries to help, who's gotten very low and he tries to bring up unsuccessfully, and another French artistic sort of hippie named, we would call her a hippie, we would, in those days, she would have been called a bohemian um, uh, mono, what's the word, serial monogamy woman named Suzanne Rouvier, and she, her discussions are brilliantly insightful about Larry. So you, no one gets off the hook, but read it <clears throat> with that in mind alone, without reference to the spiritual struggle, and you'll be informed and helped, and actually you'll, certain questions that you cannot ask will be answered without having to ask them. So you'll, this will reward you, male, female, whoever you may be. Now, finally, the point that I was trying to make, we have, uh, we have at the very end of all the uh, characters, uh, Larry is the only one, Mom, in his rather famous ending of his last paragraph of uh, The Razor's Edge, describes Larry as having found what he wanted, which was happiness. So in a way, his book has a happy ending. The point that I would like to make, uh, there is no real ideological paradigm for what Larry has found. Uh, he describes himself as a Protestant at one point. He's very interested in the figure of Christ, and he's, he's, he's well informed about Christianity, and he really explores aspects of Christianity to the hilt uh, and, and is helped very deeply by Meister Eckhart and people like that. But <clears throat> nor does he become a Hindu or a Buddhist. He is simply looking for what is... Um, true of life. He reminds me of the Kerouac character in the Dharma Bums when uh, uh, the uh, 
he's talking to Jeffy Ryder, and Ray Smith, who's him, the Kerouac character, says to the Zen Buddhist, who's an ideological Buddhist, he says, Jeffy, look, I just have to tell you right up front, I'm not really interested in all the uh, cultural um, and foreign exotic uh, aspects of uh, Buddhism. I'm not interested in the religious trappings at all. I have no interest in mandalas and running around and various sutras. I'm interested in the first noble truth, that is, all the world is suffering, and uh, the second, and possibly in the third. Uh, but don't think that I'm interested in Buddhism as anything less than a, a helper for me to find out what gives. And at one fell swoop, he is the Larry Darrell character, although Larry Darrell is um, um, not an alcoholic. Larry Darrell is much more, you might say, in control of his search, and in a way, therefore, he reaches something. Larry Darrell is not interested in any exotic flavor of any particular cultural context. He's not interested in exoticism. He wants to know what's up with his friend who sacrificed his life for Larry's, who then stood up as he got out of his safely landed biplane and said, well, I'll be jiggered, and at age 20 fell over dead. <clears throat> this shock for which Larry was unprepared requires an answer. And so Larry, unlike all his other compatriots, moves forward to find the answer. And he finds something in his early 30s. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that absolutely interesting? So as you're thinking about this, if you've sometimes said to yourself, you know, Saul is such a downer. I mean, I was really, really hit with this at All Saints, Chevy Chase. They said, your message is a message for people in the second half of life. Richard Rohr even says this in one of his books, essentially. You can't preach to younger people who are all caught up in what this world has to offer in its vain storehouse. You can't preach to them a message of renunciation and sagan, renunciation and forbearance and uh, disillusionment and search, and uh, he who shall save his life will lose it. You can't preach it to young people. You won't get through. And I, uh, that didn't wash with me, because if it's true, it's true. It's Kantian. It has to be true for a 19-year-old as well as for a 99-year-old. It cannot. Yes, of course, it'll be different because of the vitality, as Gautama said, Siddhartha said. I, I'm looking for the same thing that a person facing death would be looking for, but I'm, I'm in my twenties, my early twenties. So I've got more physical vitality, strength, and energy. Now that I want to say, um, you, you can't pour cold water on people because they won't accept it. They'll simply get out of the way. But on the other hand, is it possible to be a young? vital, if I may use the word as mom uses it even of Larry, sensuous human being who's young, but who still has the warning lights, the yellow lights flickering in his dashboard to say, you know, we got to get out of this place. Something's got to give. And I've got some time here. I've got some energy. I've got some interest and I've got some real, I've got, I've got a body going for me that can really find out the meaning of all of all that, this, that, that I will ultimately see, but which in my case, Larry Darrell's case, I've been fortunate enough to see at an early age. So mom answers the question, how shall we respond to the, to the enigma of human life if we were a thoughtful, educated, and thoroughly normal young man of 19? That's the great, happy, synthetic marker of this brilliant and fruitful book. Thank you very much and God bless.